Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the November 2nd, 2021 edition of Ask a Leader. Virginians finished their gubernatorial election today. Make sure your friends turn out, your family if they're there. Make sure everybody you know in Virginia turns out to vote today. Today, my guest includes Sheila Liming here bringing her new book, Office, in the Bloomsbury Publisher Series, Object Lessons, which takes the longest view over the centuries of that vaunted structure known as the office in a humanities lesson that, well, it breaks humanities lessons. In the second segment, Craig Terrell returns to the show bringing his latest production that he's directing, The Nether, at The Wayward Artist. The play is written by Jennifer Haley. Craig will also commemorate the Orange County Theater Guild Awards during a very different kind of year. We'll be right back. Thanks for staying tuned. Welcome back. My first guest is Professor Sheila Liming, bringing her new book, Office, in the Bloomsbury Publisher Series, Object Lessons, which takes the longest view. I mean, as I said, over the centuries of this bonded structure, listeners may recall when I previously hosted UCI lecturer Rebecca Tuhus Dubrow, whose contribution to Object Lessons series was personal stereo about the Watman. Sheila Liming is an Edith Wharton Scholar at Champlain College in Burlington, Vermont, and she's with a, with a previous appointment at the University of North Dakota. Her approach is an eight-cylinder humanities lesson, given all the <laughs> reference points she brings to her teaching. Although I'm acquainted through mutual backpacking pals, many others know her for her bagpipe dedication over the years. She completed her Bachelor's of Arts in English and Women's Studies at College of Worcester, Ohio, and her Master's and PhD at Carnegie Mellon University in Literary and Cultural Studies, one of the many offices she's gotten her own personal experience with. Her next most recent publication is What a Library Means to a Woman, Edith Wharton, and the Will to Collect Books. Her copious tweets are truly a replacement (laughs) for the water cooler, which may or may not be brought up in our time together, since the book tour had gone on as planned at the outset of 2020. She's bringing her book tour, among other places now, to Radio KUCI. Sheila comes to us today from her office in Burlington, Vermont. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Sheila Liming. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, thank you. I'm just, this is the first time I've heard Sheila's voice. I've seen her tweets and I can feel, <laughs> I can feel her voice coming through. Well, congratulations on Office, this terrific tome, tome for the ages about this ubiquitous workplace, the office. How is it that you managed to be a Renaissance woman in such a compact read, meeting Mead, Mumford, Marx, and so many more? But, you know, I got to keep this alliteration, folks. How did you do it in such a compact read? Um, Well, I suppose I can blame my training a little bit on that. As you said, I have my Ph.D. in uh, English and uh, Literary and Cultural Studies. And so my, my Ph.D. and my own educational training was very interdisciplinary. Um, something that I'm very grateful for. I was taught that nothing is off limits and nothing should be off limits, you know, um, to our curiosity. And if it speaks to us, we should study it and we should find a way to understand it. So in the book, that means that I talk about literature, I talk about architecture, I talk about TV, movies, culture, the whole gamut, basically. <laughs> well, uh- you know, with the persistence that we're going to talk about, that big theme, it's, it doesn't necessarily speak but shout at us at, as we walk over the threshold of that, that whole office setting. Well, the inspiration for your book came from many places. Let's have you tell the listeners who may recognize some similar exposures. <laughs> sure, sure. In the introduction to the book, I talk about some of my early experiences in office settings, and one of the experiences I was really thinking of 
was when I was a kid and my parents would take me to work on what back then was known as Take Your Daughter to Work Day. This was a a movement that started in the the 70s and the 80s. Um, It was sponsored in part by Gloria Steinem, the famous feminist icon. And the idea was that we should, you know, expose young women and young girls to um, workplaces of our parents in order to get them acquainted with what kind of jobs and futures could be out there for them. It later expanded and became not just about, of course, young girls. Um, But when I was a kid, I would go with my parents a couple times to see their places of work, take your daughter to work day, and I would learn about how their various offices worked and who worked in them and all the kind of moving parts that put them together. And so that just kind of helped, you know, plant the idea in my brain that offices are a big part of the way that we perform work in the modern age. And for many people, they're a ubiquitous part, although, of course, not for everyone. And then as I was, you know, uh, going through my own early years of my own career, I had a number of different offices. I had some pretty sad little cubicles. I had some pretty sad little basement offices. I had one that was actually a converted supply closet, and it had a window in it that looked into an actual supply closet that was still being used. So I had spaces like this. And then just a few years ago, about five years ago, I was visiting some friends of mine in Chicago who work for a tech company there. And they brought me to their office, and it was unlike anything I had experienced. It was beautiful, and it was lavish, and there were fresh flower arrangements on the desks, and there was an in-house bartender on Fridays who would come in and make you a cocktail. And there were, you know, um, beanbag chairs and foosball tables and showers on the premises, and it was a totally different experience. There was a pool on the roof that you could access. So I started thinking about the way that offices differ for us, depending on the types of jobs that we do and the way that we experience those spaces very differently. So what I notice about Object Lesson Series, there's a sweeping elegance in suspending the definite article in the title. (laughs) It's office, not the office. Isn't that elegant to you? It is, and I can tell you're a grammarian and noticing that a little bit. Well, no, um, but it's I powerful. I like that elegance myself. Yeah, it's. I think it speaks to the idea that you know the books in this series they kind of show a category of objects without focusing too specifically on a specific instance of it. So we're talking about offices in general here as a category, not a specific version of what the office is supposed to be. Indeed. So you're already alluding to it, and I, I really mean, Sheila and listeners, there, I'm, I'm going to so avoid many of the, the some of the, <laughs> the particular details so that either Sheila can bring them up or what they're really meant, my withholding is meant to lure listeners. I, I am not about spoilers, so whether <laughs> uh, whatever kinds of creative contributors come to Ask a Leader, I really want this to be a tease for everybody to pick up their own copy. And remember, we're, we are the book tour, among other places. So the thread you're talking, alluding to, is the persistence of hierarchy, the office reinforcing power. You cover both the hardware and the software in your book, (laughs) dating farther back than I want to tell listeners prematurely, but we are, because we are a spoiler-free zone, but you really, you covered the centuries. I had no idea that that there are various 6th, 7th century office renderings. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. I I think over the history of this type of space, you know, and we can, we call it the office now, but previously it was called other things in history. But over the history of this type of space, one thing that we do see associated with it is a sense of hierarchy and power. And that's why, you know, we have these stereotypes about the corner office suite that's on the top floor that has the view of the Manhattan skyline and that has, you know, its own private secretary attached to it or something like that. An experience that most of us probably don't know firsthand, but we're familiar with it when we see it in movies or something like that. And we have, I think, um, you know, through our own culture and our own cultural interactions, we have come to understand that offices are spaces of privilege, that if you have a place for yourself to think and to do your work and to be alone without other people looking at you or interrupting you, that that is a uh, position of privilege, and it usually comes with a fair bit of power associated with it. Indeed. 
And as you pointed out, that the Carnegie Mellon closet was a reminder to you that, yes, you are uh, you're in the basement with the view of another <laughs> closet. But when you talk about the rare opportunities, I'm not going to go there, folks. I'm just going to let you see, <laughs> imagine what I mean by other opportunities. So you think, well, I'll have a chance. There's a very seasonal kind of window to when you can interact with others higher up on the hierarchy. So, but that, you know, we may get to that part of that seasonal part of it. (laughs) So the persistence we talk about. So as you talk about these concepts, fleshing out the office hierarchy, you tap into an extraordinary array of historical, literary, and entertainment references. How accessible were they? Did you just keep building on that as you saw patterns? And this is kind of like notes you were keeping to yourself. I mean, how did you bring all of these references into this compact read? Um, A little bit, yes. There was kind of a snowball effect that was happening there. So when I started out planning for the book and writing my proposal for it, um, I was thinking about some of the big cultural texts that we have that represent office life. And one of them that I was thinking about right off the bat is the show Mad Men, which premiered in the early 2000s. And I had actually never seen it at the time. Um, I'd never seen an episode, but I, I heard people talking about it. People always discussed this show. And the way that I heard them talking about it was very much in a kind of romantic tone. Nostalgic. Like, remember how the office used to be, how great it used to be when we, you know, when we were all gathered together and when things were simpler or something like that. So... I was interested in watching it and beginning to look at the show because I wanted to capture or get a sense of where that romanticism was coming from. And that, of course, led me to a bunch of other examples. And then as I started to talk to people in association with the project and talk to them about their feelings about their own offices, they kept mentioning things for me to read or to check out or to watch or something like that that resonated with them. So you began, you're seeing patterns and you start, did you go back to other films that you hadn't seen before? I mean, how, I mean, that was really a real survey of culture in yes. the, in entertainment and in history and in literature. Yes, yes, absolutely. I went back to films from the 40s and the 50s, kind of the post-war rise of The Office. That's when we really see the, the Office become a real sort of established touchstone within American culture in particular, but of course, you know, international culture as well. So I looked at movies from that era, um, including the movie The Big Clock, which is a, a fantastic film that's based off of a noir thriller written in the 1930s. And in The Big Clock, you know, that sense of office hierarchy is very clearly established through the outline of the skyscraper. You know, when you're on top, you're at the top of the skyscraper. When you're on the bottom, you're down in the basement. And the movie ends with, you know, one of the people who's associated with the corporation that's in charge falling, literally falling from the the, the top of the skyscraper down through an elevator shaft that takes him all the way to the basement. So, you know, he dies in that scene, but also we see his symbolic fall Mm. from grace there, too, from the top to the bottom. Well, Sheila, you mentioned that sort of point, that inflection point of post-World War II. And I think also there are lots of critiques about... What um, and the office actually reinforces the place reinforces mm-hmm. the job that had to be done was the women that did it all in the war effort they had to be shoehorned back into more subservient contributions in the economy so the office sort of took care of a lot of that. Yes, yes, and in interesting and sometimes rather exploitative ways too. You know, women's position within traditional offices has often been a physical positioning that makes them quite vulnerable. Um, If you think about, like, where stenographers or typists were traditionally positioned within the post-World War II office, they would be kind of all together on a main open floor, whereas, you know, male CEOs and people who are higher up in the company would have their own private spaces. So all those women would be accessible. They'd be there in the open, in the public, accessible to people who came in the door, and also accessible to the eyes and the gaze of all their male employees around them, too, who would be watching them. And I've I've looked around for some YouTube so I could have played it as a track. If I was producing the show before and I could have put it in there somewhere. But (laughs) but in that, also in those pools were not word processors. They were manual typewriters. So there was the the din of the work the women are doing in those pools and the male office employees were sort of receding into those quiet, you know, carpeted 
and, uh, you know, visually inaccessible places. So there's quite a bit of reinforcement of advantages and all that. If you're just tuning in, my guest is Sheila Liming, bringing her new book, Office, in the Bloomsbury Publisher Series, Object Lessons. It's a terrific read. I think I'd like to see this in a book club in Name Your Skyscraper Boardroom. So uh, (laughs) when I was reading your references, and I thought of... Well, you talk about Ralph Waldo Emerson, I think, anticipating the bonfire of the vanities, which was that that was a classic office setting. And your book also made me think of, I don't know if you've ever read Joseph Heller's Something Happened. I haven't read that in many years, but you so set up the situation and it, it brought that book's vivid conclusion to me. Yes, yes, that, that's a good reference there. And it's, it's not one I mentioned in the book, but now I'm thinking about it, too. So that's a good point. Oh, it, it was so interesting. So there's artifacts that you talk about. That's the, this is now, this is, I guess, I'm not sure if that's considered the soft or the hardware, the artifacts. I guess it's a blending of them. And as you say, I'm quoting you, nothing says power like a freestanding floor ashtray. That was very interesting. And so one item I was looking for when you talked about these things in the office that it didn't make your cut is the nameplate, whether it's on the desk or it's at the door. What did you, how did it not make your cut? I love that. And that's a great observation. So I appreciate it. Um, Yeah, I'm very intrigued by the idea of the nameplate, which is supposed to mark a specific part of the office, you know, a room or a chamber or even just a cubicle. A threshold. Belonging to someone. Mm -hmm. And it's supposed to have this kind of vision of permanence, but as we all know, it's not, right? Nameplates get moved around, they get replaced. I'm thinking of one of the movies I talk about in the book, uh, a movie from the 1990s called The Hudsucker Proxy, produced by the Coen Brothers, where in it we see one boss removed from his position and another one take his place. And immediately what happens is they start removing his name from the door of the office, which is etched in glass. And so he comes back to his office to get some things, and he encounters the worker who is removing the letters of his name from the outside of the office door. You know, just reminding us that that vision of permanence is not permanent at all. In fact, um, offices operate in part through volatility and fear to some degree, too. So... I want to know, did showers catch on? I mean, I, my, like, big, one of my longest running office experiences, I finally figured out how I could commute 10 miles by bike to get to that place, Denny Regrade for you Seattle people. And so, um, ah, right. And so, but I don't know, did showers not catch on for, or was, were showers a way of saying some people had privileges and others, you know, figure out how to dob off in the public restroom? Yeah, that's, that's a, Good point. Um, you know, I think for ages, female employees have been expected to do some sort of physical transformation of themselves within the space of the office. So I think about the, um, the old trends that you used to see, less so these days, about, you know, female com- employees commuting to the office in tennis shoes and then changing into nicer shoes at the office and, you know, maybe doing their hair and their makeup and that kind of thing. Not that facilities necessarily provided for that transformation, but it definitely was expected. And I think you're right with the um, with the shower thing. Many modern offices do have showers. I think the nicer they are, the more likely people are to use them. And a lot of modern offices have showers, but they're almost like an afterthought. It's like it's there for you if you need it or if you want it, but we don't really expect or maybe even want anyone to use it. Okay. So we're talking about the exclusive space accessible to those higher up. So um, the Twitter... Among other kinds of social media, because we're still talking about those indestructible and those artifacts, those things, Twitter and social media are a stand-in, a decentralizing one for the water cooler. I mean, I always call Twitter a water cooler with a, a huge one. So is yes. let's talk about how social media is sort of kind of throwing off that artifact of the water cooler. And there's a much broader, a bigger broadcasting of what people are sharing that they would have shared at the water cooler. Yes. And I love the concept of the water cooler. And in fact, there was almost a water cooler on the cover of the book. And then we replaced the design with the um, image of the little corner cubicle. But um, but the water cooler, you know, was once a means of, of course, drawing people outside of their individual offices, but it also catered to a specific need, that need being that if you wanted to talk to people, you had to leave your office and you needed a central place to kind of, you know, meet up with them and talk to them. Um, 
You know, in our contemporary age with social media, you don't need to leave the physical space of your office to talk to your colleagues. And those colleagues also might not be sharing your physical environment. They might not be located down the hall. They might be located across the country or even on the other side of the world. So in that way, I see uh, social media platforms like Twitter as kind of replacing the water cooler. They inspire that similar kind of water cooler talk. You know, it's often sort of frivolous, but that's also where relationships are made in the office, too. That can be a big part of what the experience is all about, of working inside an enclosure like that. Okay, now I am, there is a little bit of a spoiler, but there's so much that isn't going to be fleshed out here. But you talk about in the office party setting, that water cooler becomes a kind of social leveler in what is filled with. Yes, I had a really good time talking to people about office parties and office holiday parties in particular. Um, And I looked at a number of cultural texts, movies, etc., that stage office parties in one way or another. And one thing that I noticed was a running gag about the reuse or the kind of appropriation of the water cooler. It's supposed to be this kind of formal physical feature of the office that reminds you that you're in an office space. Yes. And in these movies, such as the movie titled Office Christmas Party from 2017, um, we see people appropriate the water cooler. They fill it with booze or they use it as part of a party gag um, or they roll it down the hallway or something like that in a way that kind of symbolizes that they're wreaking havoc on the office. Well, you know, Sheila, I'm also thinking there's power in what you put in that water cooler for the holiday, right? Definitely. Who, who yeah, knows yeah. what's in there? What's mixed? Is, is it going to level level people? Uh, I mean, it, do a number. It's not like a a date dinging, but uh, but there is a. I'm filtering my speech here, but um, so but it but that's another. I mean, power is so so very pervasive in office. Mm-hmm. It absolutely is. Yes, and so you think about the idea that an office is essentially a place of shared resources. Um, It's a place where you bring workers together so that you don't have to provide individualized resources for them and so they can share things, things like electricity and interior space and also basics like water and coffee and access to light and, you know, um, machines that they may have to use together. So in that way, the water cooler is, you know, kind of a symbol of those shared resources and the way they are supposed to work within the office environment, but of course, don't always work quite that way. So I want to bring up this increasing the privatization of space in office space with an ascending trend of protecting proprietary information within a firm that's going on as well, um, so that it's, it's fewer and fewer people can get into that space. So that's, a, that's, in a way, controlling it, getting people over that threshold and badging up and that kind of thing. And getting, actually, in order to get the badge, there is a good deal of personal information that is served to the firm. So there's that piece. And then the kind of control from the surveilling that goes on inside and the perimeter of the office space. So you unpack some of the contrast between Amazon's fears in Seattle and their fulfillment centers around the country. So let's talk about those two things going on is how the privatization is sort of building upward as well as the surveilling that has a kind of of a not-so-subtle control of the workplace in data yes. collection. Yes. It used to be that offices were seen as a place where work happens, meaning that in many office spaces, business would actually have to take place there. So you would need to make them open because clients or other types of people would actually have to come into and enter the space of the office in order to do business. I can even think of a caterer who had to go to uh, Wizards, the, the the gaming. It's their home office is in Irvine, and the, the they ordered the food. And a acquaintance of mine that you know they had to sort of eddy around outside to bring the food in that they wanted inside. Exactly. So I mean, there's all yes, forms yes. of this barrier. Yes. Yes. The the contemporary office is a much more enclosed space. It's a much more often elite space or exclusive space where certain people are kind of prevented from having access to the office, as opposed to that old idea of, you know, wanting to bring the public in so that they could interact with the people who are there. Um, now business and interactions tend to take place elsewhere, usually on the Internet or in some kind of virtual sphere, which means that the office does not have to be an open and accessible place, and it actually works to exclude people as much as it works to admit them. Um, and so I talk about, for instance, the um, Amazon spheres, their headquarters that are located in Seattle, 
And I was able to tour the Amazon spheres. I toured a couple of office spaces um, while I was doing research for the book. And the tour um, was a little bit difficult to arrange. The public is not allowed inside the Amazon spheres. And what's more, not past the first floor, just the first floor. Formally allowed inside them either. You have to have special clearance for them and you have to be designated as having access. So somebody who works in an Amazon warehouse, for example, doesn't just to get, get to walk inside the spheres and tour them just because they're a member of the company, mm. technically. Um, so I had to get security clearance to be allowed to go inside and look at them. So, and yes, the exclusivity of access to the sphere and then the fulfillment center. And so I want to get to the, the, the surveilling that goes on, that the data is being collected, I mean, to the, like, to the the hair follicle in the fulfillment centers is what's actually going on. And that kind, I mean, it's the fulfillment center is an office of sorts. I mean, it's, it, this is how yeah. broadly speaking we, t- we call offices. Yeah, it is. It's, it's a place of work, right? Um, and, and that makes it a kind of office. The people who work there together are colleagues of a kind. But as I talk about in the book, um, there's a lot of impediments to collegiality and to feeling like that space is an office, meaning the Amazon warehouse. So I quote from an interview with an Amazon warehouse employee who talks about, for instance, how difficult it is to even talk to each other within the space of the warehouse because it is so noisy. Um, There's constantly the noise of machinery and um, motion and, you know, vehicles that are running around and things like that. And so most Amazon warehouse employees will wear headphones during the day or protective ear equipment. That means that they can't even really have conversations with each other while they're working there. Well, it just sounds so dystopian, so alienating that. And, yeah. and and we are. I mean, it's the the press is keeps giving us a more and more vivid impression. I just want to remind people who've just joined us, Sheila Liming is my guest bringing her book Office in the Bloomsbury Publisher series Object Lessons, and I uh, there there aren't that many spoilers, I don't think. It's so you explore the implications of both the interior physical space as well as the urban suburban spatial rings. The office has such a reach. You cover all that, like I talked about your being multidisciplinary. So talk about <laughs> that reach because you said it impacts the workers, but it it impacts workers families, too, to the extent of what workers' relationships might develop into in the office. Yes. I I think we have this traditional conception in place, not always true, that the office is located in an urban environment and the office worker's home is located somewhere else, in a suburban environment or outside the city or maybe further away or something like that. And that idea, of course, you know, gave rise to the concept of the commute and the space that you have to travel to get from your home your place of residence, to your office, which is located somewhere else. And one of the things that I develop in pieces throughout the book is that, you know, the office space itself can be a good thing. It can be a really useful thing to have workers interacting socially. But then there's the issue of the commute, and everybody hates their commute. So that, in turn, ends up making people hate the office um, and resent having to travel to the office. And we're seeing, you know, some pretty intense negotiations that are going on right now in our own culture because of that, with the rise of remote working and also the um, lingering effects of the COVID pandemic. And that is a terrific seg for why this book is an evergreen read as you anticipate the continued unraveling of the office construct. You've already talked about the temporary workers, the atomization of the structured workspace, WeWork, which was ascending and then declining, and it's sort of they're <laughs> trying to map it out, putting big full-page ads as we're, we're back in office, back in office, back in the coffee shop is another sort of decentralizing to the dining room table. That brings us to the pandemic. So it's virtually jumping off just before the pandemic. So we're talking about the disinterest in those massive commutes, but what else is changing under the office structure that you're noticing this far past March 2020? Uh, Yes. So the statistics that I quote in the beginning of the book about remote work have now basically doubled. At the time when I first started researching and writing the book, it was estimated that about 43% of the U.S. population was engaging in some form of remote work, and now we're looking at far closer to 80%, if not more. Wow. Um, At least when we're talking about the kind of traditional white-collar information economy. So that sector has become much bigger, and a lot of people are engaged in these negotiations now with the places that they work for and the companies they work for about how to manage that. Because now that we have openly acknowledged that remote work is possible, 
it's very difficult to put that genie back in the bottle and bring everybody back into the office, even when we become convinced that it's safe to do so. So does that trying to keep the that trying to lure the genie back in the bottle is that changing then the power structure giving leverage to the workers that has never existed before is it a is it a new day at all Sheila or am I just being uh, my <laughs> jumping on a a fleeting train here well, I see reasons for both, you know, um, pessimism and optimism where this is concerned. So I'll start with the pessimistic part, and then we can talk about the hopeful part. <laughs> um, on the one hand, I think it makes it harder for workers to see where they exist within an existing power hierarchy if they don't actually enter into the physical space of the office. It also makes them. Uh, it also makes it harder for them to meet each other to talk and socialize, and thus to organize as well. Um, if there are problems in the office that they want to address. It's really difficult for them to address if they can't actually get them together and, like, be in the same room with their fellow employees. But on the other hand, too, you're right, the rise of remote work is giving people a little bit more flexibility over their individual schedules and days. And that's something that I know a lot of people feel very optimistic about, um, that they have just a little bit more time that they can use flexibly within their day because they're not chained to a physical space where they're expected to be. And I think that um, it's also releasing some people from the pressures of commutes as well, and that's a good thing. So this is out in left field. You didn't know I was going to bring this up, but I, I just have to. I don't know if you're familiar with the dinner party download guys, Rico Galliano and Brandon yeah. Francis Newman. So, and when they published Brunch is Hell, and I had them on actually several years ago when the book was out, it, it I think it's a very interesting companion piece in mm. how your work and their work is actually promoting humanity and civility. So I, I just want to sort of throw it out there and give me a chance to bring up Brunch's Hell again, because they want to reinvigorate connections, genuine ones, and they have, it's a mapping out of that. But so I, I just thought, you know, for a companion tour or a panel at some place, I just want you to keep the dinner party download guys in mind. Absolutely. Yeah, we'll do. And, and I agree. Um, I think we are both, you know, moving in that direction of trying to think about productive forms of socializing. And the office, as I try to argue in the book, is a place that actually has the power to promote that kind of productive socialization. Well, very good. I thank you so much for giving us your time. Hold on. I'm just going to, I've got a little treat here because <laughs> here we go. So I want to thank you, Sheila Liming, for being on this, uh, to bring in your splendid book for your craft and your wit that you raise our interest and you raise our respective games in writing. Thank you so much for your time today, Sheila. Thank you so much. It was an absolute pleasure, Claudia. Oh, thank you. My guest was Sheila Liming here bringing her new book, Office, in the Bloomsbury Publisher Series, Object Lessons. It's a terrific read. As I said, it's raising our thinking, and our writing. We'll be right back with my next guest, Craig Terrell, Artistic Director of The Wayward Artist, bringing his latest production, he's directing The Nether. At The Wayward Artist, the play is written by Jennifer Hill. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show. Returning to Ask a Leader is my next guest, Craig Terrell, Artistic Director of Wayward Artists, a production in Santa Ana, and uh, is a member of the faculty at Cal State Fullerton University Department of Theater and Dance. Craig is bringing his latest production that he's directing, The Nether, at The Wayward Artist, the plays written by Jennifer Haley. Craig will also commemorate the Orange County Theater Guild Awards during a very different kind of year. Craig regularly has come to this show to present each new season of theater work. He began a professional acting, directing, and teaching career after having completed his MFA. He's earned uh, his BA in philosophy and as well his master's in theology. He currently teaches beginning actors at Cal State University Fullerton, as well as the Shakespeare for the actor and script analysis. Maybe he's been teaching some other ones. He comes to us today from Anaheim. Welcome back to Ask a Leader, Craig Terrell. 
Claudia, you know you're my favorite person on earth, and every time I get to spend time with you on the radio makes me so happy. Well, you you feel like a just a little uh, P.T. Barnumish there, so because I, I know Craig is loved by many, so uh, I'm I just get to feel special today while I have my live radio. So, Craig, this is the first live production, is it since fall 2019? Yes, can't believe it. So excited. Yeah, I mean, we were we were in rehearsal for a show uh, when the pandemic hit. But yeah, our last time with a live audience was the winter of 2019. So let's talk about what your identity you're keeping. Now, you've done some virtual kinds of productions. Identity is still the season's theme. So let's talk about there are different things, different ways that people can access productions. And then I'd want us to break down exactly what's going to happen with the live performance, the nether. So my understanding from touring the website is we can still live, not live, but we can still stream some productions. That's correct. We did a dance concert back in September, exploring human identity and worked with some amazing choreographers and amazing dancers, and we filmed that production in our space. And that's still available to stream on the uh, on our website. So, I'd, yeah, I'd highly recommend, if you're a lover of dance, yeah, visit our website and take a look at that. Okay. So let's talk then about the current. It's going to be running from November 12th to the 21st, I believe. It's The Nether. There are several genres wrapped into this production. It's uh, They're pretty novel to me, Craig. So tell us about this mix of genres and over the mix of ages that you're bringing that the playwright Jennifer Haley wrote back in 2011. Okay, so it's a, it's a science fiction detective story at the end of the day. I like to say it's, uh, it's like Law and Order SVU meets The Matrix for anybody that knows, you know, those television shows and movies. Um, it's a dark science fiction thriller that's exploring basically human identity in a world of evolving technology, in a world of social media, you know, where we're headed in the future if uh, we continue on our current trajectory, I would say. And you, you advise, this is for mature audiences only. Can you say more than that? Yeah, I can. So it's, um, without trying to give anything away, no, I'll just say this way. No, that no spoilers the internet, on my shows. The internet has evolved into a place called the nether, and, uh, and people can log in, choose a character, and log into the nether and live a full sensory existence in this virtual world called the nether. And uh, a character in the play has created a place in the nether called the hideaway where people can explore their deepest, darkest desires, sexual desires. And a detective is trying to, you know, bring this hideaway to a close and stop what she considers perversion and a danger to children and a danger to others. And so it's that kind of dark sexual urges and, and desires that really makes it for adult content. So is that is that viewable by the, the patrons in the lovely theater? Yes. Oh wow. Okay. Well You mean the, the, the play or the, the the what the what the character sees? The perversion. Yeah, what the character sees. I will say in terms of the play, it is a world of consenting adults and there is no there is no violence seen on stage and there is no sexual violence seen on stage. Um but there's a screen you know, that has it presented. Well, no, it's just that, you know that's part of the world. Okay, you just okay. Don't happen to see it up. All right, I, that's because that's helpful. I think patrons all would be uh, you know wanting to know how that works. There, I'm uh, speaking for all of us yeah. there. So, and I trust your full-throated endorsement of the kind of experience that you're offering. And so I'm I'm in. I'm in. I can't wait for this to come up here. And so talk about the protocols that are going to make this all work because we're all slowly moving back into some of the fine arts performance art venues. So how is this going to work at Wayward Artist? Um, well, our company, our board of directors, we decided to require vaccinations and masks to see the performance. So unfortunately, if you're unvaccinated, you will not be able to see it. We're trying to make our work available online so that the unvaccinated can see our work. We're selling our capacity at 80%. We do have a smaller space, um, so we're capping our capacity at 80%. 
and then, uh, you know, the usual sanitizing and everything else that goes along with it. So uh, those are our COVID protocols. Well, I'm guessing because of being in the Grand Central Art Center venue there, and I know a, a lot of these people are sort of like your tribe. So I, I, it seems like there is an already the acculturation takes care of that complying with all those protocols. I, I can't imagine you're going to have any kind of aircraft uh, insurrections going on, people defying your protocols. Hope not. I hope not. Yeah, I, I um, think not. Well, for those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Craig Terrell, Artistic Director of The Wayward Artist, bringing his latest production that he's directing, The Nether, at The Wayward Artist, the play's written by Jennifer Haley. He's also a member of Cal State Fullerton's Theater and Dance Department. So this is going to be performed, as I was saying, November 12th through the 21st. So that's why we have mine right now, folks. Let's get this going here. And it's at the Grand Central Arts Center, 124 North Broadway in Santa Ana. And so you're going to be right after the, the week following the opening the first Saturday of the month. So you'll have a chance yep. to hang your shingle out there. Like, Over here, folks, we're, we're selling tickets. Yep. Okay. Well, so let's talk about how this transition, I mean, when we saw Ordinary Days, that was filmed. We talked about, that was the last time when you were on the, no, not you, Brooke Aston was on talking about, she's the director. But so let's talk about what you've been doing behind the scenes. I had David Ivers on two weeks ago and all the kinds of things going on in the background. What's going on in the background for you? Well, you know, we're so much the last you know year and a half has just been about adapting and adjusting through you know the pandemic so behind the scenes i'm always you know functioning as a producer and uh, so weathering the storm and making sure you know that we survive financially and you know with our audience and you know just keeping the the business running is what keeps me quite busy we felt that uh it was super important to bring back live theater um, with the Nether this season. We didn't, felt like we couldn't wait any longer, and that it just we needed we needed to you know be producing theater with a live audience. Right now, it's kind of we're after the the Nether. We're headed to our holiday gala and, and launching our fifth season. Can't believe it, you know that we've already in, we're into season five. So a lot of work has been doing behind the scenes, just preparing for our next season. And I'm just wondering, with your Cal State Fullerton student pool, are are any of them, were they getting a lesson on disaster management here with this? I mean, this this is a whole different sort of pedagogy, wasn't it? Well, I think, you know, yes. Yeah, for everybody. I think for every theater artist, it's adapting through this pandemic. Um, there's things we've learned and how adjusted and being flexible, I do think theater artists tend to be flexible already but um right 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 yeah but uh especially in education the educational part that's it's been quite a bit of adapting and adjusting and flexibility as you know because theater was just devastated by COVID-19 and uh you know it's, it feels great to be kind of on our way back to what's going to be a new a new equilibrium I guess so you're old enough to know, and maybe there's, to draw a parallel here is, when you were talking about how devastating this has been for theater, so uh, I'm thinking of another devastating trend back when the AIDS crisis was was sort of being unaddressed for so long. Does it, does it seem like, wow, we've been here before? It's an interesting uh, comparison. Um you know, this, the AIDS pandemic, you know, was so focused early on in the 80s, you know, you know, as a homosexual disease. And I, I don't know if it quite had the same. It, for those living in the gay community, yeah, absolutely. Those outside the gay community, I'm not sure, you know, but had in, quite the same impact. But um, The gay and creative pieces coming together, and this is sort of... yeah. And, oh and, yeah, and no. In terms of theater, yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, gosh, there wasn't there wasn't a time in New York where, you know, you didn't know artists and actors and choreographers and everybody that you know that hadn't lost somebody. Yeah, you're, you're, in terms of the impact on theater, yeah, that 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 is a good comparison, Claudia. It is. Well, and 
a, a raw one. So I, I want you to talk about the what the season is going to be, and we're, we're not going to forget your work with the Orange County Theater Guild because this this was also the heavy lift for them. So and, and you're serving with them. So let's talk about the season for well, 20, so the fifth season, season coming up. In season five uh, in 2022, we're coming back with hope. Our, our sort of theme is for hope, hope for transforming our wayward world, which is part of our mission. And uh, so we're coming back with a, a musical called The Toxic Avenger in the spring. We're doing a play called Jen Silverman's Collective Rage, a play in five Bettys. We're exploring LGBTQ uh, history and identity uh, when it comes to our dance collaborative. And uh, we're ending the season with uh, a small two-person play called Actually by Anna Ziegler. And alongside um, our continued commitment to BIPOC artists. And so we have a whole season of Wayward Voices, too empowering and amplifying BIPOC voices. Okay. So now overlapping that, bringing yourselves to the fifth season is all of the, I mean, I know of one casualty of a member of the, the Orange County Theater Guild. They, I don't think they've, they're ever coming back, but so you're on the board, I understand, of this guild. Talk about what is going to be this awarding process and what you've all weathered and how you've had to sort of collaborate in ways that you never, never considered possible. Yeah. Um, I'm, just to be clear, I'm not on the, the board of okay. directors of the OC Theater Guild. We're I just, just saw you on that members. Zoom session there. Um, okay. I am <laughs> a contributor for the board in the 2022 season, but okay, that's not complete yet. But I, I'd, I'd be an honor to serve on the Orange County Theater Guild. They are a great organization. So there's, you know, there's a couple things. Right before the pandemic hit, We've just worked on uh, OC Theater Guild Awards, you know, an Orange County award system to recognize, you know, the achievements and accomplishments of the guild members within Orange County, and then the pandemic hit. So those awards are just now starting back up. This, for 2021, will be the first full award season that there will actually be a ceremony and and celebration of the achievements of Orange County. Um, What makes the guild so great is kind of the shared support in terms of uh, all the, the the community theater in Orange County. I just remember just ordinary days, for example. Um, we needed a rehearsal space, and uh, a fellow theater company was just there for us to support us with rehearsal space. And uh, so it's sharing of resources and sharing of knowledge and best practices. You know, the legislation recently changed in the top of 2021, the AB5 legislation, if you're familiar with paying independent contractors and, you know, had a strong impact on uh, uh, small theater companies, particularly like ours. Well, um, the theater, the it's theater. a negative impact. But, negative impact. But for, the, but for the labor, it was a positive. So that, that probably put you over a, an interesting no, dilemma. It depends. Yeah, maybe. I, I kind of, not really. Depends okay. on, okay. you know, the, the yeah. I've had that argument another day. But, okay, yeah, well, that's um, the that's the the complexity of it all of the yeah. enterprise. Yes, but the guild is just such a great resource, channeling that changing, you know, legal world. You know, implementation of things like that. It's just a great support for all. They they really lift all theater in Orange County um, by uh, the support of each other. So, so can you speak proud to- member? So, I'm sorry, can you speak to some of the attrition, though? You've lost some in the Guild, or do they, are they sort of hanging on and trying to figure out how they return as full-functioning theaters, or are, is there, there is some casualty rate that cannot be recovered? Um, I, I can't speak to the attrition of members within the Guild, you know, I, I know they've lost members and the gained members. I found the guild's engagement during the pandemic robust and supportive. I mean, just COVID-19, again, mm-hmm. to have the guild there to, you know, support and foster communication, and, you know, just things like the mandate. You know, the last COVID meeting I went to, or the last uh, board meeting, or excuse the me, guild. guild meeting I went to was on COVID and sharing best practices and what we're doing and how we're bringing back live audience. And uh, so I find them fully engaged and robust and, and surviving like the rest of us. And so people are certainly uh, 
besides going to live these all these performances at members of the guild that I guess that we could make it a little pitch here for people to seek out the guild and see where there are resources, whether it's amplifying events coming up, whether it's cutting a check. I mean, the guild is a is an entity that can be supported as well. Yeah. Yeah. What's the best way? It's cold so, cash. You know, they've got a Facebook page or they're just octheatergill.org. You know, what's, what's great about them, like, you want to know what's going on in Orange County? You know, the, the uh, theater resident members of the uh, of the guild, um, you know, it's a, just a nice central accessing you know, place to find out what's going on in theater in Orange County. Yes. Not just from what shows are being performed, but auditions and, you know, they run great articles and, and uh, yeah, they're just a great support. Well, you sound... You sound really whole. You sound healthy and well. Just can we close with how you and your affiliates, how are you doing today? This is Thank November you. 2nd, 20... Do you know, the, so this is the first show I've directed since the pandemic, and, uh, and I'm working with an incredible group of actors on this, and uh, just to be making theater and participating in the collaborative process... I mean, it's just, it's everything that I love. It's my passion, and it's like feeling, you know, I'm an old friend has returned from the war, and uh, and uh, so I'm just beyond excited about not only the show, but everything about it, and it's just like, oh, I, I love what I do, and so I really am excited, and I, and I hope people will come see the show, because I, I really feel it's it's like, whoa. It's it's an experience you won't forget. Well, it'll be emotional, sort of everybody kind of assembling again, because so, we some of we patrons sort of recognize each other. So you you make it sound a little effortless, but we know you've been through a lot, and it's it's not over yet. So well done, Craig. Thank you for your time today, and I look forward to having you when the season five kicks in, and we're going to push some more tickets at that time too. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you, Claudia. My guest was Craig Tyrrell, Artistic Director of The Wayward Artist, bringing his latest production that he's directing, The Nether. And the play, as I said, is written. We've got to talk about the playwright, Jennifer Haley. He's also a member of Cal State Fullerton University's Theater and Dance Department. So that is what we're going to do. Thanks again, Craig. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, that's my wrap. And for next week's show, I'm treating you, I'm thinking, to a wonderful chronicle from a World War II veteran and family friend who left us several years after I had the privilege of interviewing him. This for Veterans Day. Talk with you next week. Thank you for listening, everyone. Hush, hush, little child. Mama